Good morning. Good to be with you again. Uh, someone's going to have to figure out a way of, of making these things here compatible with face masks. Um, at least I'm not wearing my glasses. That's an, an extra complication. I say good morning. I'm looking at the time. I make it uh, 11.58. Uh, I always find um, speaking at this time of the day is awkward. And it's not just because the people who are listening are hungry and hoping this doesn't go on so long that lunch is pushed further and further back. Um, but it's just when you stand up to say good morning, you know, you're thinking, is it 11.59 or is it 12.01? And a few years ago, I developed a little rule of thumb and uh, decided that if you haven't had your lunch yet, then it's still the morning. So I assume that you've not had your lunch uh, unless you stopped off in McDonald's or something on the way uh, to get here. Uh, a couple of days ago, when Gail asked me for a title uh, for what I was going to talk about this morning and, and the passage, um, I thought I would call it Thoughts and Prayers. Um, and I wonder if you've ever found yourself using that expression or writing that expression somewhere. Uh, maybe, you know, it's, it's a friend on Facebook and uh, they're going through a particular crisis and you want to encourage them, so you just put thoughts and prayers. Uh, and if you're into Twitter, uh, other forms of social media, you, you've, probably, you've probably been aware of, of how often people like to put that little comment in just as a way of expressing support for someone or expressing sympathy if something terrible has happened. It's, it's a bit controversial because it doesn't really cut an awful lot of, uh, doesn't really carry an awful lot of weight uh, with, with people who are not believers. And so sometimes you'll find people saying, well, we need a lot more than thoughts and prayers, don't we? We need somebody to actually do something. Thoughts and prayers. We're going to think a little bit today, not so much about thoughts and prayers, we're going to think a little bit about prayers. And uh, we're going to do it by looking at this prayer that has been recorded for us, it's been read for us just now. We've already uh, had one, through, uh, one run through it uh, for the, from the kids' perspective. But this prayer that comes at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul never held back about in terms of telling people that he was praying for them. And as you read about the ways that he talks about how he prays for people, you realize that there was an awful lot more to it than just saying thoughts and prayers. You know, it doesn't just write to Ephesians and say, well, guys, you know, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, thoughts and prayers. There's a lot more, there's a lot more to it. And you find in many of his letters, there are expressions of gratitude. Um, he writes about his gratitude when he has seen the evidence of the grace of God at work in the lives of the people that he's writing to. And also in several of the letters uh, and the prayers that are in, in his letters, especially the letters that are written from prison, we get quite a, a, a clear idea of the kinds of things that Paul prayed for when he prayed for, for, these, for these people. And a couple of those prayers come in uh, Ephesians, the one that we're going to look at just now in Ephesians chapter 1, but there's another one that's in Ephesians chapter 3, one that tends to focus on God's power and one that tends to focus on God's love. Now, I think Paul's prayers, whether it's these ones in Ephesians or other prayers that, that you can read about in, in his letters, they're both a challenge to us and an encouragement to us. They challenge us probably in, in at least a couple of ways. For one thing, when you realize just how many people Paul was praying for, he had a very extensive prayer list. Churches that were dotted around the ancient world, and Paul was praying for the people there. But also, I think they're a challenge 
because of the thought and the depth that there is in them. Far from saying thoughts and prayers or simply, well, you know, folks, I pray for you from time to time that God would bless you and that God would be with you and that he would help you. Those things are fine, but far from stopping there, he prays in a lot more detail. And I think that's why the prayers are not just a challenge to us, but they're also an encouragement to us. Because if we're thinking, you know, I'd like to do more than just pray that the Lord would bless someone or the Lord would be with someone. If I, I, you we're wanting to do more than that, then these prayers that Paul has written down in the letters give us examples of the kinds of things an apostle prayed for. And the kinds of prayers, therefore, that an apostle expected God to answer. So we do well to to listen to, to these prayers and, and to, 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 to try to reflect on what those would look like if we were to incorporate them in our own lives. Now, before we look at the details of the prayer, I want you to notice why he prays. Before we, before we see what he prays, look at why he prays. And you notice a couple of things. First of all, he says, for this reason. And what he means there is in light of what he's just talked about in the first part of the letter. Uh, what in our uh, Bibles is the, the first 14 verses, or verse 3 to verse 14. It was the focus of what we looked at last week. And in that, Paul's been saying, isn't it amazing how God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ? We've been chosen by the Father. We've been adopted by the Father. We have been redeemed by the Son. Through His blood, we have the forgiveness of our sins. And we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has marked us as God's possession, and that's a sign of possession and, and, and protection of us. The Holy Spirit has sealed us. And in the light of all of these blessings, Paul says, I'm praying for you. It's interesting that he wasn't content sort of to, to let them rest on their laurels and say, well, isn't it great that you've come this far? That's fine. It says, in the light of all that God has already done, in the light of how God has already blessed us, let's pray for more. The second thing is, he says, I heard of your faith and love. This is how Paul knows that the people that he's writing to have become part of the plan and the blessings that he's talked about in those first 14 verses. They've responded to the gospel by putting their faith in the Lord Jesus. And the sign that, that this faith has taken root and their lives have been transformed and they've come into this plan of God is the love that they have for all God's people. Faith and love. And so when he hears about it, he knows that they're part of God's plan, so he prays constantly for them with a sense of gratitude. And I think that reminds us that, that one of the things we should never lose sight of and we should never lose a sense of praise about is when we come to hear, when we hear about people who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus. And when Paul hears about it, he thinks, fantastic, now I'm going to pray for these people that they go on from here. And when we hear about it, we should also be saying, isn't that wonderful? Another evidence of God's plan that's at work in the lives of men and women and boys and girls and young people. Or when we hear about a church that's growing 
and it's growing as people have responded to the gospel. Faith has taken root in their hearts. Their lives are being transformed. We should be saying, well, praise God for this. We should probably be saying, now, how can I get those people? Uh, how can I pray for those people so that they continue to move forward on this journey that they've begun? So the actual prayer, what does he pray? Well, you notice that there are really four parts to what he prays. And I think probably the best way to understand it is that there's a general, uh, a general aspect of, of the prayer. Um, and then there are three specific ways that that is worked out. And the general uh, part of his prayer is simply this. Well, I say simply, but it's, it's a lot more than just simple. The prayer is that they would know God better. So verse 17, if you look at verse 17 again, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Knowing God better. We know lots of things, don't we? We live at a point in, in human history where there's masses of knowledge and masses of information available to us. And it's available to us at our fingertips. Some of us are old enough to remember where we would have had to go into a library and look at things called encyclopedias if we wanted to find out information. We have to read lots and lots of books. And now here we are in a point in human history where quite literally at your fingertip, you've got amounts of information that would have been undreamt of by a, a generation or two back. Uh, some of the information is important. Some of it is less so. Uh, some of it actually, I mean, some of you, are, I, I know you, well, I, I assume that you're following the reading of the passage on your smartphone. Uh, I don't actually know. I remember once my wife, uh, maybe I've told this before in Cornerstone, but I remember once my wife was in a congregation where I was preaching and she, the people in the row in front of her didn't realize that the wife of the preacher was sitting behind them. And, uh, you know, she was able to see that, well, they weren't actually following the passage at all, like Facebook or something, something like that. So you may be on Facebook, or you may be just about to Google some of these, these questions that, that I'm going to ask. But I, I'd leave it to the end of the service if you, can, if you can restrain yourselves. But, for example, at our fingertips, what's life expectancy in Malaysia? Maybe it's not a question that has kept you awake at night. Some of you probably be more interested in this piece of information. How much distance does a Premier League football player cover during the course of a game? What's the most popular worship song on Spotify, say, in, in Ireland? How many words are there in Lord of the Rings? I'll tell you that, not because I've read it, but because I've Googled it. 455,125. There's so much stuff that we can know about all kinds of things and all kinds of people. Do you know that in one day, there are apparently about 3 billion searches carried out on Google? 3 billion. That's not million. It's billion. Every day, there are about 500 million people who log in on Facebook. About 175 million tweets are sent. About 144 billion emails are sent. 70% of them are spam. YouTube has 4 billion views every day. And on WhatsApp, there are about 100 billion messages that are sent 
every day. Now, some of you may uh, decide to Google all of that to make sure I've told you the right thing and you'll correct me at the end of the service or something like that. But just masses of information, masses of things for us to know. But here is the question that jumps out from this passage. How well do we know God? You know, in the end of the day, if we know how far the average Premier League footballer runs during the course of a game, well, that's, that's a great little party piece. But how well do we know God? Is, is he a passing acquaintance? where we've picked up a few bits of information, maybe from Sunday school, we've picked up the odd line from a worship song or something that we read in a devotional book? Or do we have a deep and growing knowledge that actually leads us to trust Him and it leads us to worship Him, to trust Him more than we ever have and to worship Him more deeply and and more earnestly and more sincerely than we ever have? Paul prays that they would know God. They'd know God better. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory. And as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that expression reminds us that Jesus has come to make him known. And Jesus didn't simply come to give us a book about God or to give us a series of lectures about God. Jesus came as God in the flesh. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory. Now, will you notice something here? This knowledge is not automatic. Notice this also. This knowledge is not guaranteed by Paul giving more and more information. If it was guaranteed by Paul giving more and more information, well, instead of six chapters in Ephesians, we could have had 12. You could increase the length of all of Paul's writing. He could have given more and more information. Paul gives the information that people need, but he realizes that if we're going to know God better, what's going to have to happen is that the eyes of our heart are going to have to be opened. Something spiritual is going to have to take place. So that the information that we've got becomes more than information and it actually becomes part of us knowing God as part of our lives. So we're to know God. But then specifically, that's the general thing. And then specifically, there are three things here. Um, And the first of those is that he wants us to know the hope of his calling. Um, our Our modern translations, ESV, NIV, Translated, I think, the hope to which he has called us. So literally, the hope of his calling, but the hope to which he has called us. Now, hope, and you probably have heard people say this before, in the New Testament, it is more than just wishful thinking. Some of you are so tired of this warm weather that you're hoping that it gets cooler. Now, that's probably wish, it's probably more than wishful thinking because it probably will get a little cooler this week. Usually at this time of the year, you know, if I was talking about this, I would illustrate it with the opposite. I would say, well, you know, some of you are hoping that it's going to be a dry, sunny day on Wednesday because you planned a barbecue or you planned some sort of a picnic or, some, or something like that. And, and you know enough about the climate here to know that sometimes hoping for a great day of weather or a great week of weather because you're going to be off on, in, on your holidays somewhere, um, well, it's not much more than wishful thinking. 
But in New Testament terms, when Paul talks about hope, he talks about it as something that is much more solid. When he talks about hope, he talks about the prospect of the fulfillment of our salvation. When, according to Romans 8, glory will be revealed in us who belong to Christ. And hope that it's not just about us as individuals, but hope that the, whole, the groaning of the whole creation will end as creation is set free from its slavery. Our hope is in the completion of our redemption. We've already been forgiven through the blood of Christ, and the Spirit is given to us as a guarantee of what is still to come, and we have a hope about our future. Let me give you an illustration of hope that is more than just wishful thinking. Um, it involves a story of a man called Jim Stockdale. Jim Stockdale was an American admiral. He was a prisoner of war in Vietnam, um, was, was imprisoned for eight years, was a prisoner in what became known as the, 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 the Hanoi Hilton. Uh, it's what they called the prisoner of war camp. And going back a number of years ago, he was interviewed by a business writer called Jim Collins. Collins prepared for the interview by reading a book that Stockdale had written along with his wife. And the book was about the experiences that they'd had during the eight years that he was imprisoned in the Hanoi Hilton. And here's what Collins says about reading the book. He said, as I moved through the book, I found myself getting depressed. It just seemed so bleak. The uncertainty of his fate, the brutality of his captors, and so forth. And then he said, it dawned on me, here I am sitting in my warm and comfortable office on a beautiful Saturday afternoon. I'm getting depressed reading this, and I know the end of the story. I know that he gets out, reunites with his family, becomes a national hero, and, ends, uh, and gets the opportunity to study philosophy at university. If it feels depressing for me, how on earth did he deal with it? when he was actually there and didn't know the end of the story. And so he asked Jim Stockdale about this. And Stockdale said this. This is really important. I want you to take this away with you. He said, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted, not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. Now, interestingly, Collins asked him a further question. He said, who didn't make it out? Who didn't get out of the camp? And Stockdale said, oh, that's easy. The optimists. That's really interesting, isn't it? The optimists didn't make it out. You think the pessimists, because they had no hope, so they just gave up hope, so they didn't make it out. He said it was the optimists. And he explained it. He said they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. Christmas would come. Christmas would go. Then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. Easter would come. Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. And you see, in talking like that, Stockdale was making a very important point. His faith in the end of the story did not deny 
the difficulty and the challenge and the pain of what he was living through. The optimists were the wishful thinkers whose hope and whose faith had absolutely no basis. I never lost faith in the end of the story. That, I think, is hope. And God has called us into a story that has a good ending. And so Paul prays not only that they would know God in a general way, but specifically that they would know the hope of this calling, that they would know that the story that God had called them into was a story with a good ending, the hope of his calling. Second thing, the second specific thing is God's inheritance in his people. Notice he talks about the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, when we think about God and inheritance and and us, ourselves, if we're in Christ, and the idea of inheritance, what we probably most often think about is the idea that God has stored up an inheritance that one day we're going to get to enjoy it. We already get to enjoy lots of blessings. There's the, the adoption that Paul has talked about. There's the redemption that he's talked about. There's the sealing of the Spirit that he's talked about. Um, there's so many things that, that we already have begun to taste and there's an inheritance in the future. But actually, what's happening here in this, in this particular part of Paul's prayer is not so much the inheritance that God has, is keeping for us to enjoy at one point in the future, but it is the inheritance that God has in us. We are his inheritance. And that is what Paul is praying about here. Now, the idea that God has an inheritance in his people is an old idea. It wasn't Paul who thought it up, but it comes from the Old Testament. Uh, God's inheritance and in his people. There's also the inheritance that he has for them. That idea is there in the Old Testament as well. But in the Old Testament, God says to his Old Testament people, you shall be my treasured possession. The whole earth is his. But out of it all, his people are his treasured possession possession. Now, you probably know the Old Testament well enough, and you know the Old Testament story well enough to realize that it was a very bumpy road, and that very often those people who were called to be God's treasured possession lived very far from this destiny that was, that was meant to be theirs. There was unbelief. There was idolatry. There was judgment. There was exile. Very difficult picture in much of the Old Testament. And, and yet, God never abandoned his love for those people. He never abandoned his plan. And you find that even in, in parts of the Old Testament, like some of the minor prophets, which are full of the judgment of God against his people, yet so often his judgment is tempered by his grace and his mercy towards them. He never gave up on his plan. And so listen to this from Isaiah chapter 43. You may be familiar with these words. You've maybe uh, got them on a card somewhere or even got them on a plaque in your house. But Isaiah 43, do you know, just, just listen to these moments. God speaking to his Old Testament people. He says, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I've summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. 
And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. You're precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. That is how Paul prays for these Ephesians. Because, you see, that is what it means. Isaiah 43 is what it means to be the treasured possession of God, for God to have an inheritance in his people. When God has an inheritance in his people, this is the language that God uses. And so although Paul's not specifically quoting Isaiah chapter 43, yet we can take the likes of Isaiah 43 and say, Lord, help me to know more of this. Help us to know more of this. Because this is what it is to have this extraordinary value placed on us by God himself. Isn't it true that sometimes one of the most difficult things for us to grasp is the extent of God's love for us? We're aware of our failures, and we're often ashamed of them. And the idea that God would see us individually or put us all together in a ragtag bunch, that God would see us as his treasured possession that he would say, you are precious and honored in my sight. Well, that just seems strange. And we're not sure we can really get our heads around it. But yet he does love us. And nothing can separate us from his love. A little while ago, a few years ago, I was uh, talking to uh, someone about the, the story of their Christian faith and their, their journey in leadership. Um, and he told, me, he told me about something that happened to him when he was a young person. Now, it involves a character called Larry Norman. Um, and I think there probably are some, I, some in the room who are old enough to know who Larry Norman was. Uh, if, you don't if you don't remember or didn't, if you never came across him, Larry Norman was, a, was one of the sort of early Christian rockers. Uh, he had uh, long blonde hair, probably pretty much shoulder length. And he went around doing concerts and so on, was a, was a very much out-of-the-box type of a thinker, uh, thinker and performer, um, and, and really, stirred, really stirred lots of things up. But this guy was, who was talking to me about his story told me about a time when he went to a Larry Norman concert in Scotland, Motherwell. And during the course of the concert, Larry Norman stopped and he looked out at the crowd of people who were there, and here is what he said. There's nothing that you can do that'll make God love you anymore. And there's nothing that you can do that will make God love you any less. And you'll never disillusion him because he never had any illusions about you in the first place. You are precious and honored in my sight, says the Lord, and I love you. And Paul wants the eyes of these people's heart to be opened so that they will know the extraordinary, glorious riches of God's inheritance in his people. Final thing, God's power. Now, there'll be more about uh, God's power in, in chapter 3 if you 
go on ahead and, and read through a little bit more of Ephesians. But you find in chapter 3, this is quite a well-known part of chapter 3. It says this, that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. That's an interesting sentence. He's able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. Now, Paul, think about what Paul could have said instead of saying that. He could have said, he is able to do more than all we ask. That, that would have been pretty good already, wouldn't it? You know, whatever you can ask God, God's able to do more than that. But he says, he's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask. Immeasurably more. You can't put a measure on it. And he doesn't even stop there because he says, he's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. And I'll tell you what that says. That says that there are far more resources available to us than we have probably ever realized. No wonder then that when Paul's praying back in chapter 1, that they're going to know God better. They're going to know this hope of their calling, of God's calling on their lives. They're going to know the, 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 uh, the inheritance that God has in the saints. No wonder that he wants them to know about the power of God that's available to them. He prays that they will catch hold of it. Someone has said that our lack of appreciation of this power of God is a sign of how much we need this prayer. Our lack of appreciation of this power of God is a sign of how much we need this prayer. Now think for a moment. I want to come up with an example of the power of God. What would you think about? Do you think about creation? Do you think about the solar system, and the size of the planets that are in it, the insignificance, the relative insignificance of our earth compared with the size of the sun, the vast distances, the galaxies, is that what you think about? You think about, well, God made all that. That's powerful. God sustains it. That's powerful. Would you think about the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels and how Jesus stands up in a boat and rebukes a storm and the storm just stops? Or driving out demons or healing disease? Or standing in front of the tomb of Lazarus and saying, Lazarus, come out. You know, there's a great story that's told about the old uh, Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I realize that, you know, it's 40 years since Martin Lloyd-Jones left us uh, and his ministry, but he had a massive ministry out of Westminster Chapel in London uh, for such a long time. Uh, his expository preaching, unique expository preaching for his, for his era. Uh, remarkable man. But the story's told about him that when he was a little boy in Sunday school, they were doing the story of Lazarus. And, and it, was, it would have been King James Version, of course. So, Lazarus, come forth. And the teacher said to the kids, why, did the, why do you think Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth? And Martin Lloyd-Jones said, well, if he hadn't said, Lazarus, come forth, they all would have come forth. Great answer, great insight. But for Paul to think about the power of God, the example that he gives is raising Jesus from the dead. But more than that, it is raising him and lifting him up and seating him at his right hand. 
place of honor, place of authority. He seats him at the right hand of God. And you'll see more about the implications of that if you look at chapter 2. But here's what he said, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted, verse 20, when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And the Ephesians would now know that this Jesus that they'd put their faith in was alive and was seated in the place of greatest honor. And whatever power they might like to think of in their day, whether it was a magistrate or a governor or an emperor, Jesus was far above them. And so whatever power we might want to think of in, in, our, in our day, whether it is a prime minister or whether it is a president or whether it is the, the general of an army or whether it's an Instagram influencer, whatever you think is the most powerful person on the face of the planet, Jesus is far above that, above all rule and dominion and every name that is invoked. And he says, and God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Everything is under the feet of Jesus. And he rules for the benefit of the church, his own people, and as he fills everything, his fullness is seen most completely in the church. That's what the power of God has brought about. And Paul longs for these people. He's, he's so encouraged to see that God has this amazing plan, that these Ephesian people have become part of this amazing plan, that, that they've come to faith, uh, that they're, they're growing in their love for one another. But he says, folks, I'm praying I'm continuing to pray for you that you'll know this God more and that you will know this power, the same power that raised Jesus like that and put him in that place of honor, that you'll realize that that power is the power that he has towards you. That's why he prays for their inner eyes to be open. How much do we need that? How much do we need our eyes to see all of these things, to know God better, to, to have a, a new awareness of the hope that we have. We know the end of the story. To have a, a deeper awareness of, of, of the, the, the love that God has for us, the richness of his inheritance that he has among us, and the great power and the great resources that he has available to us. So what are we going to do? The wonderful truths that are there, enough to fill our heads and get, get us thinking and, and all the rest of it. But we need to pray that, just as Paul prayed for these Ephesians, we need to pray that we would have spiritual insight into these things. These things would grip us at the depths of our being. So how does it need to change the way we pray as individuals? How does it need to change the way you pray here at Cornerstone for yourselves as a church, for other churches that, that you know, say that are others that are part of the, the Acts 29 network, other churches that you have fellowship and connections with, the church on this island, 
What if we set ourselves to praying like this? What would it look like? Communities where people are growing in a deeper knowledge of God. Communities where, where people are confident because they know the end of the story and they never lose faith in the end of the story. Communities where maybe people are so overwhelmed by the idea of God's glorious inheritance in the saints that when the restrictions are gone and all of this is behind us, you know, maybe we'd start dancing in the aisles in joy at the songs that we sing about God's love, that it would take root in our hearts like that. And a confidence that would come about and say, look at the resources that we have. Let's pray that God will open our eyes. We don't need to clench our teeth and try harder to believe, but let's just pray that God would give us a bigger and bigger vision of his power and that that would, that that would shape us. And so let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Um, we want to confess, Lord, that it is a challenge to us. And forgive us, Lord, for it's, it's, as though we're, it's as though you invite us to a banquet and we're content to stand off at the side and just fill ourselves with, with a few Pringles. Lord, help us to really go after the ways that, to go after knowing you more and to go after the ways in which you want to fill us. Lord, open our eyes, open our hearts so that we will know you more. In Jesus' name, amen.